Good morning. My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, as he said, we're in a series uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 10 today, but in chapter 8, there was a question that got raised. The question was this, uh, can we eat meat uh, in a temple that's been sacrificed to an idol? So you would have um, this temple, they would have meat, it would be sacrificed, offered up to an idol, and, and they were asking this question, which was actually a pretty controversial question in the early church. Uh, can we eat it? Are we allowed it to eat it? And chapters 8 through 10 is responding to that question, and his response um, is like he's, it's like he's peeling an onion, just kind of one layer at a time, one layer at a time, really until we get to next week when he gets really t- to, to the heart of it. But this week, this week, uh, we hit a bright red layer. We're, we're peeling a white onion, and we peel the layer, and the layer beneath it is bright red, the universal warning color sign the, the, the color that is on stop signs for a reason. And so let me frame it like this. Um, how, how many of you guys like to camp? Campers. How many campers in the room? All right, I don't get you at all. Uh, I don't get camping. I don't get choosing to sleep outside. It doesn't make any sense uh, to me at all. I love you. I don't get camping. But imagine that you're camping. Imagine you're, you're there and you're camping and you're sitting around the fire. I like the outdoor camping activities. I just don't like the sleeping in a tent side of things, but that's not part of the sermon. But imagine you're sitting outside, you're around the campfire, and, and you're, just, you're telling stories, you're doing what you do when you camp, and, and you look to the left, and 100 yards away is a bear just kind of inching its way towards you. How do you respond? Is it you look at one another and just go, I mean, we're not going to get away. Like, let's be honest. Um, Let's reminisce a bit. We only got a few minutes left. Let's enjoy these last few minutes. Do, do you uh, get up and go, I bet if we just kind of inch our way toward the bear, the bear will run off? No. No, you, you run or you do whatever it takes to get out of danger. Why? Your life depends on it. And Paul is going to say today to the Corinthians, And he's going to say to some of us, you are living like the camper who is walking toward the bear. And you need to run. Why? Your life depends on it. And the way he begins, he begins with using Israel as a sobering example. So let's get to it, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers are, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And so here's how he begins. He begins his warning to the church in Corinth by going back to Israel. Israel was the people of God in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the, the Bible that came before Jesus. And he references back to an event known as the Exodus. When Israel was, they were captives in Egypt and God came and delivered them out of Egypt. And he says, our fathers. You have to understand that when he thinks of Israel and the Corinthians, he thinks their story is our story, our story is their story, that there's this woven unity in the Bible. And when he says they passed under the cloud through the sea, he's flashing back to Exodus 14. That says this, verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. 
coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night. It lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then, verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. So this is the famous event where Israel is being led out of, uh, led out of Egypt. They, they come to the sea, and, and God parts the sea, and they walk through the sea. And this section in chapter 14 finishes like this in verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. But here, here's what's interesting, is that the cloud, it represents the presence of God among them. The, the sea parting, the water, represents the saving grace of God as he delivered them out from Egypt. But here's Paul's point. Here's Paul's point. All. All of Israel. All experienced God's presence. All experienced God's deliverance. And then he goes on. Verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is uh, primarily not a theological statement about baptism. It's primarily an illustrative statement about Moses. Not that it doesn't have anything to say about baptism. We'll come back to that in a second. But this is primarily about Moses leading them out of their captivity. Moses being Israel's deliverer. And again, who does it say experienced God's deliverance from Moses. That was for you guys. Who? All. 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 Verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, different scene, same story. Exodus 16, the people are hungry, and they're grumbling, and God literally fed them food from heaven, bread from heaven, manna from heaven. And then in Exodus 17, again, thirsty, frustrated, God fed them, uh, gave them water from a rock. Paul called it spiritual food and spiritual drink. This is interesting. I, I think it's interesting. Uh, you have physical food, you have physical water, and Paul now looking back goes, hey, this is spiritual food, this is spiritual uh, drink. What? What does he mean by that? Here's what he means by that. He means that it is food and drink provided by means of the Spirit. It came from God. God provided for them what they needed, food and water. And who received the food and the water? All. All of Israel. All. And he keeps going, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. And Christ existed before his incarnation. This is eternal second person of the Trinity. And Paul, when Paul looks back, and, and Jesus as well, but when they look back at the Old Testament, they see Christ active in the life of Israel and the people of Israel. And that the rock was both spiritual and it was Christ. And it was Christ in spiritual form who provided for the needs and nourished the people of Israel. He is the one that sustained them. And his point, again, 
It was all that received water from Christ. That throughout the first four verses here, four verses right out the gate in uh, chapter 10, first four verses, the word all is used five times. Five times that he is making the emphatic point that all of Israel passed through. All of Israel received the presence, the deliverance, and the provision of God, and yet, and yet, verse 5, nevertheless, with most, keyword most, he switches from all to most, and yet with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So here's what's happened. They've been delivered out from Egypt. They've all passed through the sea, and with most of them, God was not pleased, and they died in the wilderness. And Gordon Fee, brilliant commentator, looks at this and says, the point seems to be, and I I think he's right, the point seems to be, just as the Corinthians, Christian life began with baptism. So our father's deliverance from Egypt began with a kind of baptism, right, being led through the water. But that did not keep them that did not keep them from falling into idolatry and thus falling short of the prize. A reference back, I said last week we'd walk our way right into the tension. This is a reference back to the athletic metaphor where Paul says, I I don't want to be disqualified. I don't don't want to live my life in such a way that when I'm done preaching the gospel of grace in Christ that I find myself disqualified. And Paul is making a weighty, weighty point. All experienced God's deliverance some experience God's judgment. Roll back in time and imagine that you're the people of Israel and try to put yourself in your, their shoes. Like imagine, imagine we're standing there on the shore of the sea looking back at the Egyptians going, I don't know how this is going to work out for us. Maybe we should start reminiscing. And then all of a sudden, the, the water parts we walked through, uh, we're on dry land on the other side as the water collapses in on the Egyptians and we are saved. And how many of them do you think looked at that and said, oh, how good is God? Oh, God is so good. Look at what he has done for us. He has delivered us from the hands of the Egyptians. All of them. And yet some, some, fell under the judgment of God. But here's a question. Um, I think it's a fair question to ask. Uh, What does that have to do with the church in Corinth? I mean, that was Old Testament. This is New Testament. And didn't things change from the old to the new? Fair question, is it not? I think it is. Verse 6, Paul will answer it for us. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. All right, the word example, it's, it's, just, it's just not a great translation, but it's the best that we've got in English. It's the word typos, it means type. It, the, the best way to explain that is it, it's Paul saying, hey, listen, their, their life was a foreshadow of ours. Their life was a foreshadow of ours. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means the Israelites' experience The Israelites' experience of redemption, idolatry, and destruction is used as the lens through which the Corinthians are to view and understand their own situation. Here's the point. Paul is not playing games with the church in Corinth. 
Like these are a people that he came and he poured out his life to see this church birthed. And he is not playing games with them. He is answering their question about eating in temples with the most serious warning he gives in the Bible. Here's the warning. They fell away and you can too. Hey, church, Corinth, hey. My beloved brothers and sisters, do not be foolish. Israel fell away. You can too. And now he goes on to give four commands, four reasons that some of Israel fell away. Verse seven. Verse seven. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference back to quote, back to Exodus 32. Exodus 32 opens like this. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. In verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down. So the people are down, bottom of the mountain, Moses up at the top of the mountain with God. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're, they're waiting. And when they saw, when they saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, another leader, up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. All right, there's something we can learn very practical about idolatry right here. That what, what is an idol? An idol is anything that you trust more than God. Anything that you think will give to you what only God can. And in their shoes, they're looking up, and it appears like Moses is delaying, and so if Moses is delaying, we don't know what's happened to him. If we don't know what's happened to him, we can't trust the God that he said was leading us, and so obviously God is not leading us anymore, and so we need to create ourselves a God that we can see, a God that we can hold, that we can touch, that we know is going to go before us. And we, we don't, I don't think, we don't melt our gold and jewelry around here and create gods. So to modern Westerners, we, we think this is um, somewhat ridiculous. But we do it all the time. It doesn't look this way. But we're going to get to that in a second. And now he turns to three fruits of idolatry, if you will. The four things, idolatry, and then three things that flow right out of it. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 th- 23, fell in a single day. This is a flashback to Numbers 25 where they were sleeping with religious prostitutes. And they didn't just sleep with the religious prostitutes, they bowed down to their gods. And and do you know when they bowed down to their gods in Numbers 25? Here's one, when they were eating, when they ate with them. So why is this warning in here? On, On the surface it might seem a bit out of place, but you know what else was all around the temples in Corinth? Religious prostitutes. They're saying, listen, you're putting yourself in harm's way. You're putting yourself in harm's way, church. What are you doing? Don't don't do it. Paul knows this. uh, God made sex to be a man, a woman, inside the context of marriage, inside that covenantal marriage relationship where the sex between the two weaves them together and draws them closer to God, and any sex outside of that hardens your heart toward God and leads you away from him. Say, don't do it. It's not just about sex, it's about your heart and what God you worship. Saying to them and to some of us this morning, 
you're playing with fire. You're playing with fire right now. Like you're, you're playing with fire, you've got some gasoline around and you don't even know that it's about to explode and you're gonna find yourself five years from now, 10 years from now, wanting nothing to do with the God who loves you because you gave yourself over to another God. But he's not done. Verse nine, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, that's another, nor grumble, verse 10, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is rolling back to Numbers 21, verse five, and the people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. This is Israel. You ready? Yes, we have your deliverance. Yes, we have your presence. Yes, we have your provision, but it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. Now, what we find in Israel, what we find in Corinth, and what we see in us is this ongoing dissatisfaction with our life. And I should have said some of us. It's not a blanket statement for all of us. But in some of us, we find just this ongoing, ever-present, nothing is ever good enough. Right, I've got an apartment, they've got a house. I've got a house, I've got a better house. I've got great friends, they have a spouse. Ongoing, ever-present dissatisfaction with my life. And the point he's going to great length to show here is how God feels when you look at your life, the life that God has given you, and you say, just not enough. It's not enough. Why can't I have? And point at the person next to you. Well, now he turns. He turns from Israel and he takes the arrow and he fires it directly at the heart of Corinth. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. That's a parallel word to typos again. As an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he, lest he fall. They were written down so that we might not, so the church in Corinth, so that sojourns, so that we might learn from them and our hearts might not go where theirs did. And he's saying, take heed. Take heed. Like, like imagine it's Paul right here looking at you saying, take heed, Corinth. Take heed, sojourn. Take heed. I don't want you to be unaware that some of you are living life with a bear right next to you and you're looking at it thinking it's a toy. Take heed, sojourn. If we could bring forward the examples that he gave into us, I might illustrate it like this, that, that to the women in the room, there are some of us in this room who have an inordinate desire to be viewed and seen and noticed by men because what Jesus says about you being beautiful isn't enough. Because your husband's affection's not enough. To men, a thousand times we've talked about it, some of us are inching our way toward an affair five years from now because we just don't think a double take is a big deal. To all of us, greed is just lurking right around the corner. I mean, not just because we're in Houston. I mean, major cities, it's all around now, but ours in particular, a bit of a unique context. It's just lurking all around. Some of us are unaware of how much that has affected us. We've closed our eyes to our heart's real desires. 
all of those fruits of my life's not good enough. And all of these, Paul is saying, I want you to open your eyes that you might see your desires, that you might not wind up like Israel. But if we're honest, um, if we could be honest, like th- this is describing all of us in here. Like all of us. Like that, like that list we gave, I gave three examples. We could fill a novel with examples. And the reality for me is it just comes natural. Like I don't have to convince myself to be greedy. I don't have to convince myself. I could just be me. I'm sure that I'm alone, feeling a little vulnerable right now, but whatever. I don't have to pretend, I don't have to try. It's just in me. It's just there. It comes natural. So what do we do then? Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Saying, hey, Corinth, you're not, you're not special. You're, you're like Israel. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation he will also will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is um, a simple statement. Temptation is real. God provides the escape. But here's the question. What, what is the way of escape? Notice the, the article, right? You see the apple over there. How many apples are we talking about? One apple. What's the way? What's the way? Well, Paul does not give specifics in here, but I, I do think that we can get to the answer if we ask a simple question. Why did Paul use the Exodus to illustrate the situation that Corinth is in? Like if, if, if you have just a cursory glance of the Old Testament, here's what you can find. You can pick anywhere in the Old Testament, and you, you got pretty good odds you're going to find Israel being idolatrous. Like, it's just a continuous story of idolatry for the people of Israel. Like you, could, you can open up any page, good shot, that's how you land. So why the Exodus? Could it be? Could it be? that what he wants is for them to look back and to remember that there was a day when they were slaves and Israel was slaves in Egypt and God took Moses and provided the way of escape. And they might bring that forward and know that just as Israel experienced the presence, deliverance, provision through Moses that the true and greater and more beautiful Moses has come, the one who in Jesus would be how we experience the presence, deliverance, and provision of God. Might it be that he wants them to look back and know that while we're not slaves in Egypt, we are slaves to our own desires, and the only escape is the death and resurrection of Jesus more fully applied to our lives. And then we can live, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, my beloved, Flee from idolatry. Flee, imperative, emphatic. Flee from idolatry. Run, run. Your life depends on it. Flee, flee. In the context of meat offering, uh, being offered up to idols, stop putting yourself in harm's way. Stop putting yourself in harm's way. Jesus didn't die so that you could tempt yourself with other gods. Stop putting yourself in harm's way. Stop putting yourself in harm's way. But here's the deal. You cannot run from idolatry without running to Jesus. You can't. You'll run from idolatry to idolatry. But here's the question. How do you run to Jesus? Like, I've heard that a thousand times. I have no idea really what it, what it means. How do you do it? Keep reading. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. 
The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we are all partake of, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, disclaimer, lots of things we said about communion that we're not going to say today because we're going to come back to it in a few weeks, but for now, I want to ask this question. Why do you think Paul would make this statement, flee idolatry, and then back it up with a statement about communion? Why do you think he would do that? Why would you think he would back it up with the, is not the cup the bread, a participation in the body and the blood of Jesus. The participation, koinonia, communal fellowship, communal participation in the body and blood of Jesus. Here's why. Paul calls. This is from um, a commentary that St. Tim, Dr. Keller, uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, I don't know why I do that, uh, said if I had two books that I'm going to use to help me interpret the Bible, this is one of the two. Paul calls the food and drink that was miraculously provided to Israel spiritual food and drink since he understands that they were provided by the Spirit and understands. This is the parallel, bringing it forward. And understands the elements of the Lord's Supper also to be food and drink of the Spirit. I'm going to read that again. Who understands the elements, the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper also to be food and drink of the Spirit who communicates the presence of Christ to his community. Here's, I think, Paul's point. You run from idolatry by running to Jesus. You run to Jesus by running to the table. This is how you do it. It's not the only way, but it's the way Paul brings up right here. Run to the table. You run to the table. It means on Sundays you don't wake up wondering, hey, is the sermon going to be boring or not boring today? It means you don't wake up going, hey, you know what, if music just like hits the right notes, makes me feel, I will worship today. It means you wake up and you say, I need to be together with the one church and I need to go to the table with them. I need to go to the table with them. Sunday is word and table, not word or. If you want to know why we do this every single week, it's so that you'll come to the table and experience the presence, deliverance, provision of God at the table because the hymn gets it right. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That we might come to the table week in and week out and have our proneness to leave counteracted as the Spirit takes these simple physical elements and communicates the presence of Christ to us. Run to the table. Prone to leave I got the God I love was the danger that the Corinthians were in, and so he comes back again to another warning. Consider the people of Israel. Are not, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So here's what, here's what Paul knew. Here's what Paul knew. An, an idol, nothing. It's nothing. I mean, wood, right? But behind that idol were hidden spiritual realities. The unseen world. And behind every false god is hidden spiritual realities. Be, behind every false god is the demonic. And 
That isn't just true in cultures that melt God. I mean, melt gold, melt God. Nobody melts God. (laughs) It isn't just true in cultures that melt gold. It's true in cultures that create the God of success, that behind the God of success are hidden spiritual realities that thought that they would succeed in overthrowing God. Behind every false idol are hidden spiritual realities, and I believe that we are dangerously unaware of the effect and power that they have on us. And he lands it like this in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Are we stronger than him? He's saying, listen, you can't roll into a temple, hold up this meat that's been offered to an idol, and come to my table and hold up the bread and the cups offered to me. If I could bring it forward and land it with us by applying it to us, he's, he's simply restating a lot of what Jesus has already had to say that you can't worship God and money at the same time. You can't worship God and sex at the same time. You can't worship God and success at the same time. Why not? Jesus will not share his glory with anyone. Anyone. He won't share it with you. He won't share it with the demonic. He will not share his glory with anyone. And provoking him to jealousy, that's, that's just Old Testament being brought forward for how God responds when you worship other gods. For the glory of his name, he won't allow you to do it, and he won't sit idly by while you worship other gods and lead yourself into destruction. Won't simply do it. So what do I do? What do I do? Because listen, I, I and we and our elder, like we love you. Like we love you. We love our church. And there are some of us in this room who are the camper looking to the left, thinking the bear inching its way forward. Just not a big deal that I can play with fire and no match is ever going to burn me. So what do we do? What's our action plan from here? I'm going to give two things. One, run to the table. Run to the table. Today, come running to the table, asking little by little as Christ is present and your faith is strengthened, that you would crucify your desires. Run to the table. Come to the table. His presence, deliverance, provision. Come and experience it. Stop seeing Sunday simply as a preaching or a singing event. Come to the table. Come to the table. Two, find someone you trust. And if the person you trust won't be honest with you, find somebody else. Maybe this is a parish exercise, I I don't know. And ask him this question. What do you think is most important to me? Ask him this question. What do you think it is that I think I can't live without? More than likely, it's going to be a good thing, that when the good thing becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes a deadly thing. Ask them those questions. Listen, the most horrifying exercise I've ever been given was by my counselor like 10 years ago, I don't know, nine years ago, it, it doesn't matter how long ago it was, where he said, hey, um, find, find people, ask them these 10 questions, and let them analyze you for you because you lack the self-awareness to do it yourself. I didn't find that friendly, but it was helpful. But here's the reality. If I ask you, what's the thing that you can't live without, more than likely we don't have the self-awareness to answer that question honestly. 
more than likely, we need the community of Christ to speak into our life and answer that for us. Because we need to know what it is that we are or on the verge of making an idol out of. That the good thing wouldn't become an ultimate thing, so that ultimate thing wouldn't become a deadly thing. Paul's warning was serious. Run, your life depends on it. Your life depends on it. God, give us the ears to hear and eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I know the love that you have for your people, and I know that that love was the fruit of this incredibly serious warning that Paul gave to the church in Corinth. I pray that we would take this incredibly serious warning and actualize it, apply it to, to us, and we would receive it as seriously as they should have. May we who are on the verge who are running headfirst into idolatry and don't know it. Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us the community around us to speak into us? I know it can be scary to ask people to tell you who you are and to tell you what you value most. Would we have the courage to do it? Would I have the courage to do it? And would we and would I have the courage to listen when they say what we don't want to hear? We need your grace to do that for us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.